This is the second Sunday of Advent, the season of waiting, longing, and anticipation as we await the arrival of Jesus. Uh, Now, this is something we've talked about a good bit, but Advent has always had multiple layers to it. Uh, Most familiar to us is the wait for Jesus to arrive in the first coming of his birth. This is the long build-up to Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Christ. But as we talked about last week, for much of Christian history, this season of Advent was not only focused on the anticipation of Jesus' first coming, but also his second coming. Not coming at his birth, but coming as he returns in the end. Uh, This is when Jesus will return to judge all evil, to wipe every tear, and to make all things new. This is the day when the kingdom of God will finally come in fullness. It's the day that we pray for every week when we say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the day that we await for with deep longing. That is what the season of Advent is about. So throughout the season of Advent this year, we are reflecting on the book of Revelation. Um, So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is where we will begin our time today. And as, as we began our journey last week through Revelation, we noticed a couple of things. Revelation begins as a fairly typical letter, uh, like many other letters in the book, uh, in, in the Bible. Um, John is writing to a specific group of churches to offer words of challenge and encouragement, but then very quickly, Revelation takes a turn where John sees an incredible and colorful, intense vision of Jesus, and much of Revelation is filled with one wild vision after another, so that it becomes for many, very confusing, very overwhelming, and can even be very disturbing at times. But ultimately, all of these many visions, all of this builds toward the book's closing words and its final verses. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. So the whole book of Revelation and its many visions are ultimately meant to stir up a longing in us for Jesus to finally come and make all things new. Revelation is essentially a book about Advent. It is such an Advent book, this anticipation of the arrival of Jesus. So as we began last week, we observed how easy it becomes to get lost in all the action of the many visions of Revelation. 
And in order to not get lost, we need to keep the central image of Revelation in mind all throughout. We looked at this basic overview of the book of Revelation. Um, Chapters 1 to 3 are kind of the intro and the the letters to the seven churches. Chapters 4 and 5 contain the central image that we talked about last week of the throne and the lamb. Chapter 6 through 20 are the wild part of the book, these apocalyptic cycles where we see seals and trumpets and bulls and beasts and battles of all kinds. And then finally, in the last two chapters, we return to that central image of the throne and the Lamb. This central image is vital to understanding the book as a whole and its message. And so last week as we read chapters 4 and 5 and we reflected on this central image of the throne and the Lamb, we saw the powerful, beautiful throne of God surrounded by kingly figures and creatures who all bowed down and sang and worshipped. And then we saw a sealed scroll that represents accomplishing all of God's purposes in the world, that that represents establishing God's kingdom. And there's this lament that arises in this moment in Revelation 5, Uh, this lament because it appears no one is worthy to open this scroll. No one is able to bring about the purposes of God in the world and establish his kingdom until we see a lamb looking as if it had been slain. This picture of Jesus who announced and accomplished God's kingdom, not by force, but by sacrifice in his death and the power of his resurrection. So when the Lamb appears, it shifts from lamenting to absolute rejoicing as all the kings and creatures before the throne sing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And that's where we left off last week. And it's exactly where we are picking up this week as we begin wading through the apocalyptic cycles in the book, all right? So we're going to read chapters 6 and 7 together uh, and reflect on a number of these different cycles that appear. Can I get a few people to help read chapters 6 and 7 with me? Any volunteers? Linda? Anyone else? Peter? Can I get one more? One more brave soul. Mary, all right. So I got three of you. Um, so we will uh, can gather up here and we'll read Revelation 6 and 7 together. One slide at a time. Revelation 6 and 7. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, 
come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a large, loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed, just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Jumping down to verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor, and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you guys for reading. As we continue, let us pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for these images that stir our imaginations and our hearts to longing for you. God, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice this morning, speaking to each one of us through your word. I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've got seals being opened and chaos appearing to break out. Uh, Quite a lot going on here. Before we get to diving into that, how many of you have seen or read Lord of the Rings? Yeah, uh, you guys know it's no strange uh, fact to you that, that I'm a fan, right? They're, they're a classic, epic adventure tale of good and evil that ultimately centers around the mission of destroying the One Ring. All right? Now, in the first book and movie, the narrative is pretty straightforward. Uh, As you meet the main characters, they start on their journey, and then a group called the Fellowship of the Ring is formed in order to accomplish the mission of destroying this one ring. Then, spoiler alert, uh, at the end of the first movie, first book, that Fellowship is split up and dispersed. Uh, so that they're not all together anymore. And that first book, that first movie ends with them scattered about. And this means that the second book and the second movie immediately becomes more complex because you have two different storylines going on at the same time, right? There's, if you're familiar with the story, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, these warriors fighting battles and confronting evil, And then there's Frodo and Sam, two hobbits patiently journeying through enemy territory 
as they journeyed to ultimately destroy the One Ring. These two storylines in the books and movies unfold at the same time. Now, what's interesting is that in the books, these storylines are actually told separately. Um, there's all, all the chapters where you see Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and stuff doing their battles and, and journeys. And then you have all the chapters where you read about Frodo and Sam making their way to uh, you know, where they're headed. But in the movies, these two storylines are intertwined. Uh, right? They don't just have the first, you know, hour or so, one of them, and the second hour is the other story. They, they go back and forth from scene to scene, shifting from one storyline to the other, right? As this whole story plays out. Well, the book of Revelation flows a lot more like the movies than the book. Um, there are multiple storylines happening at the same time throughout the book of Revelation. Multiple intertwined storylines. And as we read, we're constantly moving back and forth between these two different stories. We see this in the two chapters that we've just read, right? In chapter 6, we see a storyline of apocalyptic action. It's like warriors confronting evil, right? But then in chapter 7, we have a storyline of faithful witnesses, the thousands of people uh, that, that are following and, and, and chosen by God. Uh, and it's like the hobbit's patient journey through enemy territory, right? These two storylines, the apocalyptic actions and the story of God's faithful witnesses, are woven together throughout this middle section of Revelation. And seeing them together, seeing this back and forth between those, is really important to understanding the message of this middle section of the book. So what I'd like to do is look at each one of them, all right? First, we have the apocalyptic actions, right? This is probably one of the things the book of Revelation is most known for, right? Um, calamity, chaos, earthquakes, falling stars, and plagues, right? I mean, when you say the word apocalyptic, that's what you picture, right? Um, that's, that's what this book is often known for, and we have it all, but despite the chaos of things like that, all of these things actually unfold in a pretty orderly way. Uh, here's the big picture, all right? I've got another outline for you. Um, in chapter 6 and 7, you have these seven seals that are opened. Then, in chapters 8 to 11, we have seven trumpets that are blasted. And then in chapters 15 and 16, there are seven bowls that are poured out, right? And after each one of these, an open seal, a blasted trumpet, a poured out bowl, some kind of apocalyptic action unfolds, all right? We, we just read the, the seals, at the very least, and this keeps on happening. I'd love to just read through all of them, but we'd be here for a while. Um, so uh, I'll just uh, talk through pieces of it. 
But what do we make of these kinds of apocalyptic actions? What do we make of all of these things happening? Uh, On the surface, it could look like God is throwing a fit, right? I mean, if we're honest, it, it looks like God is just letting loose with vengeance, with punishment on the earth. And many interpret it that way. Is that what's going on in these chapters? Here's the thing. That simply cannot be what is happening in these chapters if we hold on to the book's central image that we've looked at already of Jesus conquering as the slain lamb. Jesus conquers not by domination, not by force, but by death and resurrection, right? Jesus conquers not by killing, but by being killed. And so it is utterly nonsense to look at a slain lamb in one chapter and go, oh, that's what God did there. But then to read the rest of it as though God has suddenly become very violent. This does not make sense. And this is not the right way to read the book of Revelation. We have to hold the central image the whole time. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. He has conquered not by killing others and wielding force, but by being killed by others and sacrificing himself. So what is going on in all of these wild visions and all of these apocalyptic cycles? Well, I am convinced that these three cycles and all the associated apocalyptic actions are not about vengeance and punishment. They're not about future predictions so much as they are ultimately about calling God's people to awareness, to repentance, and promising God's people deliverance. These are about awareness, repentance, and deliverance. So let's see how that plays out in these. The first cycle that we've just read, is the opening up of seals on a scroll. This is akin to cracking open a new book, right? I mean, can you hear that? Those of you who are readers and you get a new book, you open it up, and if you listen close, you can hear, you know? Uh, That's such a wonderful thing. And then, I mean, for me, I'm immediately going like the smell of a new book, like, ah, it's great. That's what this is opening up the seals. It's like cracking open a new book. You open up a book, you unroll a scroll. Why? In order to learn something new, right? In order to see something that you have not seen before. And with each of the first four open seals, we see something quite literally come galloping in front of us. These are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse right? Um, The first one is a white horse that oppressively conquers. The second one is a red horse uh, that destroys peace and stirs up war. The third one is a black horse whose rider has measuring scales in its hand, uh, perhaps a picture of inequity, inequality in the world. 
And the fourth is a pale horse whose rider is depicted as death itself. And as each seal is opened, the brokenness of the world is made plain. These four horsemen are meant to help us develop an awareness of all that is wrong in the world. They're meant to help us see more clearly. Evil exists, and the world is broken by oppression. It's infected with hatred and inequality. It's dominated by death. Can you see these horsemen riding around us every day, galloping across the headlines of our lives, right? As the Lamb opens the seals, He is not causing these things to happen, but rather revealing these things so that we will not participate in them. He is revealing them and saying, do you see these things for what they are? Destruction and evil. Do not live in those ways. When the fifth seal is opened, the voices of those who had died for their faith cry out, how long, O Lord, until we're delivered? How long, O Lord? And then when the sixth seal is opened, there are others who run and try to hide from God. They cry out to the mountains and the hills fall on us, right? As they seek to hide. All of this is meant to cultivate awareness in us. Are you aware of the evil that exists in the world? Do you see it for what it is? Rather than taking it for granted, Do we at times participate in that evil in the world? What are the ways that we join in with the horsemen by exalting ourselves over others? What are the times that we uh, cooperate with them by spewing hateful words or harboring bitter thoughts? What are the times that we join them by selfishly holding on to our possessions? and withheld, withhold generosity from others. Whenever evils like this are exposed around us or within us, how do we respond? Do we run towards God and cry out, How long, O Lord, deliver us? Or do we run away from God and try to hide? How do we respond? The Lamb opens the seals to make us aware of the world that we live in and aware of the state of our own hearts. That's the purpose of this. What world do we live in? And who am I in it? We have to be honest about this. We have to see things for the way that they are This is the only place we can possibly begin. To be honest, open, and aware. And once we are aware, the next cycle is meant to move us 
to respond. It's meant to ultimately move us toward repentance. This next cycle of apocalyptic images uh, is the sounding of seven trumpets. And when they sound, we see things like fire falling down, the sky turning dark, invading locusts and armies, shaking earthquakes, right? All of this is very reminiscent of the prophet Joel, who writes about invading armies and locusts, and he says to the people, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and blackness. Before the invading armies, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the earth shakes. The heaven trembles. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars no longer shine. But all of this leads here. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. This is the heart of God. The trumpet sounds, why? To call us to return. To call us to repent. This is the word that Joel shared with God's people in the Old Testament. This is the word that we see unfolding in the second cycle of Revelation as the seven trumpets sound. The sound of the trumpet and all these images are meant to call God's people to repent. The trumpets are meant to turn our attention away from sin and selfishness toward God and his glorious goodness. It's made explicit when one of the angels speaks in chapter 14. John writes, I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people, he said in a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. It's right there in Revelation. The purpose of these apocalyptic actions is not vengeance, is not punishment. It is to stir God's people to repentance and to worship. That's why these pictures are there. And then finally, they are meant to bring about deliverance. They're to move us from awareness to repentance, and ultimately their promise of God's deliverance. The third cycle 
in the book of Revelation consists of bowls being poured out on the earth. And when they are poured out, what we see are plagues of sores and frogs. We see the seas and the rivers turning to blood. We see fire falling and darkness spreading. Do these things by any chance remind you of something else in the Bible? The plagues. Exactly. These are among the signs that God did in Egypt when he saved his people from slavery. These images of the bowls being poured out are not ultimately of punishment, but of deliverance. They're pictures of deliverance. The seven bowls are meant to be a picture for us of a new exodus, of God leading his people to an ultimate freedom. That's what this is. It's made explicit in chapter 15, right before the bowls are poured out. We see a picture of God's people gathered, and it says, they held harps given to them by God. And they sang the song of God's servant, Moses, and of the Lamb. They sang the song of Moses together just as these bowls were being poured out. Moses, who sang in Exodus 15 after they were delivered through the Red Sea, who sang again in Deuteronomy 32 after telling the people the story of all that God had done to deliver them and set them free. This is the message of Revelation. This is the message of all of these apocalyptic actions that unfold These seals and trumpets and bowls are there to make us aware of evil in the world and our own hearts. They call us to repent and they promise us deliverance, a new exodus. That's what all of these cycles are ultimately about. And yet, We are still living in the midst of a dark world. We're still surrounded by death and bitterness and chaos. So how do we live in the midst of all of this? How do we live? Well, that's the other storyline that's woven throughout the book. Right? You have the apocalyptic actions, and they show us very clearly the darkness and evil of the world. But the other storyline is God's faithful witnesses. Amidst the cycle of the seals and the trumpets and the bulls, there are these scattered glimpses of God's people. In chapter 7, which we read together, we saw thousands gathered and sealed for God. In chapters 10 and 11, we see a picture of John receiving the word of God um, and two faithful witnesses suffering for God. And then in chapter 14, we see 
a glimpse once more of the thousands as they follow the Lamb. This other storyline woven together through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are fleeting. They're only glimpses, but they show us a picture of what it looks like to be God's faithful people in the world. In the midst of darkness and evil, So the the 144,000 that we read about in chapter 7 are a picture of all of God's people. All of God's people. It started as 12 tribes, but now it's multiplied by the thousands and thousands, and it extends to every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. They're described as those... Do I have it on there? I don't. Um, They're described, we read this in chapter 7, as those who have come out of the great tribulation, who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's who these faithful witnesses are. The two witnesses in chapter 11 testify to the world about God. As we read that chapter, we see that they are publicly killed and humiliated but ultimately they're raised back up. They are a picture of what it looks like to answer Jesus' call to take up your cross and follow him. They are a picture of what it looks like to lose our life so we can find it. These things that Jesus teaches us and shows us in his own death and resurrection. And this call to die has been carried out very literally by many martyrs through the centuries. And there are many still today who live under threat of death because of their faith. And yet, this call is not only for them. This call is for every follower of Jesus. Every follower of Jesus is called to daily die to ourselves and follow him. In that sense, we are all to live as martyrs, whether in life or in death. We are all crucified with Christ so that with him we might be alive. All of this, this kind of living is ultimately summed up in chapter 14, where we have another glimpse of the thousands, the 144,000 following the Lamb, it says this, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. This is ultimately what it looks like to live aware and repentant with the promise of deliverance. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This is the kind of people that we're called to be in the midst of darkness and evil, in the midst of pain and suffering. A people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We can read the book of Revelation and get lost in all the images 
and wonder, what does this all mean? None of, is any of this practical in any way? Yes, it is. We live in a world that's dark, and yet we are called to follow the light. We live in a world where death reigns, but we're called to follow the Lamb who was slain. What does it look like every day to follow the Lamb, to follow Jesus wherever He goes? To not hold on to our own lives, but to live with open hands. This is what it is to be a follower of the Lamb. Ultimately, the hope of these lamb followers is found after they're introduced towards the end of chapter 7, which we read this morning. It says they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again. Will they hunger? Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the promise of the Lamb followers, and it's the promise that the whole book leads toward where in the final chapters we will read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making all things new. This is our hope. This is the longing of Advent. And so we join in praying, Come, Lord Jesus, come.